Hello, everyone. You're listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, and I'm your host, Rick Cole. Each week, we come to you from the beautiful Niagara region of Ontario, and we bring you all the hockey uh, news from 50 years ago this week. And in this episode, we're looking at the week of April 27th to May 3rd, 1970. Our podcast is made possible each week by the support of our two sponsors. They are newspapers.com, which is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and their support's been crucial to our research. As well, we're sponsored by the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Colborne. The folks at the Breakwall, in normal times, will produce outstanding craft beers, many of which are from recipes crafted by the first brewery in Port Colborne in the late 1800s. Even at this difficult time, the Breakwall continues to produce their craft beers, and they're also open for takeout meals as well. When things eventually get back to normal, I'd love to meet all of you at the break wall for a beer and a burger. In last week's show, some of the stories we talked about were the uh, Eastern and Western Division Finals with the surprising results in the Eastern Division of Boston sweeping out Chicago, while the Penguins also provided a mild surprise when they tied up their series against the Blues at two games apiece. We talked about the Red Wings firing poor Bill Gadsby again, this time from a scouting job, and we caught up with Oakland Seals General Manager Frank Selke Jr., and he talked about some of the financial woes that the troubled franchise experience during this past season this week the stories we'll bring to you we have the winner of the western final and we'll tell you how the blues took out the penguins we have all the details from the first game of the 1970 stanley cup final between the boston bruins and the blues in st louis and we'll talk about some hockey rumors going around uh, the Stanley Cup playoff arenas, one strong one suggesting that by next fall, Bobby Hull could be a member of the Toronto Maple Leafs. And of course, we have all the rest of the hockey news going on this week, so let's get to it. The week began with an off day in the Stanley Cup playoffs with the Bruins having dispensed quite easily of the Chicago Blackhawks while the Penguins and Blues were as we said surprisingly, tied at two games apiece with Game 5 slated for the St. Louis Arena on Tuesday night. The uh, rest day in the Western Series had the team's plotting strategy for the all-important Game 5. Blues coach Scotty Bowman said that he would split his goalkeeping duties over the next two games with Jacques Plante starting Tuesday in St. Louis and Glenn Hall between the pipes for Game 6 on the road in Pittsburgh. Meanwhile, Pittsburgh coach Red Kelly, in an effort to change his team's luck in St. Louis, he switched downtown hotels in that city. While Kelly shrugged off the change as insignificant, Bill Hamilton, who's a Blues administrative assistant, said the change in accommodations was made at Kelly's orders to lift the jinx the Penguins had experienced in St. Louis this entire season, where they had not 
won a game. There was an ominous pall hanging over the Penguins on Monday morning, however. Number one goalie Les Binkley, who'd played pretty well in the series, he sustained a knee injury on Sunday evening against the Blues, and the word was that he might require season-ending knee surgery for some possible torn ligaments. That would force young Al Smith into the breach for the Pens, and Smith wasn't even supposed to play in this series as he came down with a case of the measles just before the first game. Fortunately, as it turns out, the measles were of the three-day variety and not the more serious strain of, of the disease, and the Penguins feel he should be good to go with Joe Daly up from Baltimore as his backup. One of the really nice stories of this year's postseason is the work of Penguins rookie Michel Briere, who has established himself in these playoffs as one of the real rising young stars in the NHL. Both the Pittsburgh and St. Louis newspapers did nice features on the young French-Canadian center from the small town of Malartic, Quebec, and I'm sure we're going to be talking more about Michel as uh, the time goes on. Meanwhile... The Bruins were still basking in the glow of their series win over Chicago while coach Harry Sinden contemplated what to do with the week off while they wait for a Western Division winner. Uh, Sinden admitted he had never encountered this situation uh, before in his brief coaching career having a week off in the middle of the playoffs and he figured he'd have to come up with something special to keep his troop engaged. You'll remember in that series clinching game in which the Bruins knocked off the Hawks by a 5-4 score, Kenzie scored the winning goal. Well, Charlie Barton of the Buffalo Courier Express was at the game and he related this anecdote about McKenzie and Chicago coach Billy Ray. Barton said that, uh, as you must have seen on television after the game ended, Phil Esposito went out to congratulate or console his brother Tony, but Johnny McKenzie was the only Boston player who didn't stay on the ice for the handshaking ceremony. Johnny was probably tired out, uh, a lot of folks figured, but it also may have bothered him to have put Billy Ray's team out of the playoffs. Johnny played for Billy Ray in Buffalo when Ray was the coach there and Johnny was working, I believe it was in the Chicago organization at the time. He once told Charlie Barton, if I could carry Billy Ray around in my hip pocket, I'd get a hundred goals a year. Now later, when Johnny played for Billy in Chicago and suffered a serious injury that forced the removal of his spleen, Ray stayed in the hospital all night with Johnny and he was the first guy John saw when he came out of the anesthetic. Those two really admire each other and sports, as Charlie Barton says, certainly does take people down some very strange roads. So Tuesday evening, the Blues and the Penguins squared off at St. Louis and the Blues took a critical 3-2 lead in the series with a very convincing 5-0 win over the Penguins at the St. Louis Arena. It was a record-setting performance by Boston goalkeeper Jacques Plante. Jake the Snake had to make only 21 saves, but he did register the shutout and that gives Jacques Plante 
a career total of 14 whitewashes in his Stanley Cup playoff career, and that is a new record. The old record of 13 shutouts was jointly held by Plant and Toronto Maple Leaf legend Turk Broda, who incidentally this year was the coach at the American Hockey League team in Quebec City. Frank St. Marseille, who always seems to come up big in the playoffs for the Blues, was once again the big gun for St. Louis after being relatively quiet so far these playoffs. He was back in the Blues lineup after missing the previous game due to an eye injury, which thankfully wasn't at all serious. Frank scored three times, once in each period. Andre Boudrian, Tim Ecclestone also scored for St. Louis. The Blues held a wide, wide edge in play in this one, outshooting Pittsburgh 35-21. to I have a little uh, personal connection to Frank St. Marseille. His son is an Ontario Provincial Police Officer, and I taught him when I was instructing at the Ontario Police College. Blues coach Scotty Bowman praised his team's close checking, but their job was made easier by what seemed to be an inexplicably listless performance by the Penguins. Now, it could have been the heat in the St. Louis arena. It was oppressive that night. Everyone noticed it. The crowd, the uh, reporters, the broadcasters, uh, and as St. Marseille described the ice, he said conditions were heavy. The Blues seemed to be just a little better equipped to deal with the unfavorable conditions in the rink than were the visiting Penguins. There were no fights in this one, maybe due to the uncommon heat in the building, but the Blues nevertheless did play aggressively. It was just that the Penguins failed or couldn't respond this time. Jacques Plante, after his record-setting performance, didn't sound like the savvy veteran he is after the game, but he gushed about the, the shutout, more like an enthusiastic rookie. Jacques said, I can't get over setting a record like that. The Turk and Bill Dernan were my idols. I have a hard time believing it. Pittsburgh coach Red Kelly felt that the killer goal was the second St. Louis marker scored by Andre Boudria off a Terry Gray pass. Red felt that goalie Al Smith had overplayed the situation and in effect had surrendered a cheapie to the Blues. Red said Smith came out too far. You make sure he doesn't score on the short side. He goes right with him around the front of the goal and maybe he doesn't get help from the defenseman. But you make sure that if he's going to score, he's got to score the hard way. So now with the Blues leading only one more game to clinch the series and the Penguins being forced to win two in a row, the teams made their way back to Pittsburgh on the off day for the sixth game of the series. Red Kelly, coach of the Penguins, acknowledged the dire straits in which his team found itself, but he expressed confidence that this club has the stuff to make the big comeback. Red said, we're used to being counted out. We were laughed at in training camp before that even. Red went on to say, here we are again. We're counted out again. But what happens if we win Thursday? We're right back in St. Louis again, and who knows what happens in a Game 7. And while they were waiting for the game, there was a rather interesting, unusual topic of conversation on the off day of the Stanley Cup playoffs. And that uh, subject of that conversation was, of all things, 
ping pong. During off days and after practices around the St. Louis arena during the season, Jacques Plan had been spied rapidly engaging in multiple ping pong games during his leisure time. Jacques was asked about the activity and he said, certainly, I play ping pong to keep my reflexes sharp. Lots of times you smash one in ping pong and it comes right back at you. So I'm ready when that first rebound comes at me on the ice. And then he elaborated a little more. He said, in order to get a shutout, you got to make four or five stops and you have to be lucky. And that happens the same in ping pong. Meanwhile, in Boston, as the wait for the determination of their final opponent continued, Boston coach Harry Sinden had decided there will be no lengthy rest for his team. Sinden ordered daily workouts with lots of hitting and a vigorous pace in the scrimmages. Sinden was cracking the whip in much the same manner he does when the team holds its training camp every fall in London, Ontario. And the players certainly were feeling it. Harry's trying to ensure there'll be no chance of his teams going stale during this week layoff. The last thing he wants is for his club to lose an early game or two to a vastly inferior opponent. And that is exactly which whatever team the Bruin face in the finals will be counting on. The Bruins taking things lightly and maybe stealing a game or two and building some momentum to try and make what should be a dull series, really, something a little more exciting. Thursday evening, the Bruins got the answer they were looking for as the Blues put the Penguins out of their misery, but it certainly wasn't easy. The Blues claimed a 4-3 win in Pittsburgh before yet another fine crowd in Pittsburgh of over 12,400, which is just about capacity for that building. Larry Keenan, who, like teammate Frank St. Marseille, always seems to score critical goals in the playoffs for the Blues, snapped a 3-3 tie at 14-25 of the third period with his sixth goal of the Stanley Cup playoffs this year to give the Blues a come-from-behind victory. The Penguins took a 2-0 lead in this game on goals by defenseman Dwayne Rupp and center Ron Schock before Red Berenson got St. Louis on the board and Pittsburgh led 2-1 after 40 minutes going into the third period. Early in that third period, Billy McCurry tied it up for the Blues, but Michel Briere continuing his stellar postseason performance put the Penguins up 3-2 with his fifth goal of the playoffs at 6-17 of the final frame. The Blues came right back though just 40 seconds later with a back-breaking goal by Tim Ucklestone and at that point the die was cast. Keenan's game winner was barely nudged over the goal line by the St. Louis winger. He was standing at the edge of the goal crease when McCreary unloaded a 30-foot blast that Penguins goalie Al Smith was able to stop, but he couldn't handle it cleanly. The puck dropped at Smith's feet. Keenan jumped on it and shoveled it into the goal. Blues coach Scotty Bowman who during this season and even in the previous year had been critical of Keenan's play and at one point nearly traded him to Detroit was effusive in his praise of the veteran winger. Scotty said he's never failed me yet. 
He always comes up with the big goals. Larry's underrated. A lot of people thought we were wasting our time with him, but I knew I'd bring him back, especially for the playoffs. We had a different opinion of Larry in this organization. Now, what Scotty's referring to was during this past season, Larry was sent to Kansas City of the Central League when he didn't seem to be producing enough for Bowman's liking. In eight games in Kansas City... Larry scored eight goals and was quickly recalled to the Blues for the rest of the season. As Larry said, you only get so many opportunities and you got to take advantage of them. I've had lots of opportunities, but I've missed a few too. Penguins coach Red Kelly was downcast after the game, but he had no regrets and he felt his team gave it their all. Kelly said we didn't get to the Stanley Cup Finals, but we got to the Western Division Finals. They had to fight like hang to knock us out of there. We didn't go down easily. The players hadn't even showered and dressed before there were speculative questions about Kelly's future. Red, you see, is on a one-year contract with the Penguins, and he has no contract for next season. He told reporters that he would be back in Pittsburgh if the price is right and if management wanted him. Red said that ownership had been good to him, that they had kept all the promises they made to him when they brought him to Pittsburgh to coach the Penguins last fall. He admits that he had a great relationship with the ownership and with a GM Jack Riley, two things that Red felt never happened in Los Angeles with bombastic owner Jack Kent Cook and general manager Larry Regan. There have been continuing rumors, as we mentioned before, that Kelly will move to the Toronto Maple Leafs this season to take over as coach there and possibly add the general manager title to his portfolio. It's for that reason that Red says he wants to settle his future plans quick, quickly and settle the family into wherever he's going to be working next season well before the school year begins in September. The NHL wasted absolutely no time in getting the Stanley Cup final underway. The first game of the series was to begin the very next Sunday afternoon in a nationally televised game from the St. Louis Arena between the Blues and the Bruins. CBS Television Network would carry the game with Dan Kelly doing the play-by-play and Bill Mazur on the color. While both teams were expressing confidence going into the series, in reality... Only one team had its confidence, based it in logic. The most common question going into game one was, will the Bruins take it in four straight, or can St. Louis manage to even take one contest from the Eastern Division champs? There weren't many hockey people outside of St. Louis who thought the Blues could win even once. Now when you think about it, really, I guess you could could say that the Blues have reasons to believe that they are uh, qualified to be in the Stanley Cup Finals and that they have maybe a ghost of a chance. The Blues cited their extensive Stanley Cup Final experience, having played the previous two final series against Montreal. Of course, they didn't come close to winning either of those series. They were eliminated in four straight games by the Habs in both sets, 
Wally Cross, the hockey reporter for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, wrote that uh, the Bruins haven't reached a Stanley Cup final since 1958 and had not won the thing since 1941. John Busick, according to Cross, is the only remaining Bruin from that 1958 team. Wally went on to say that the Blues have nine men who have played in Stanley Cup winners throughout their careers, and that should give them a big edge over the Bruins, who are very young, with 11 players under the age of 25. Cross somehow implies that this would be a huge disadvantage to what is a rapidly aging St. Louis squad. Wally does admit Boston is heavily favored in the series and the Blues are in tough, but he gives these reasons sort of to give hope to his St. Louis readers, I'm sure. One area where most fans and most hockey people agree that the Blues do match up well against the Bruins is their men in goal. Jacques Plante and Glenn Hall are still among the best netminders in the game and both have Stanley Cup champions to their credit. But you gotta remember, Jacques Plante's wins came in the 1950s with the last one in 1960 and Glenn Hall's Stanley Cup win happened the year after Plante's last one 1961 with Chicago. Jerry Cheevers will be the main man in goal for the Bruins and he's been coming up with clutch performances all spring and if the Bruins happen to need a big save at some point in the game this year it's Jerry who has been and still will be able to provide it it says here. Meanwhile in Boston the writers were simply quite dismissive of the Blues chances. Sports columnist Harold Case who can be as condescending as a Republican senator, simply says that the Bluins look like a decent minor league team and the series can't go more than four games and maybe less if they institute a mercy rule. Sunday afternoon arrived, a lot of hoopla, a lot of... Uh, enthusiasm in the St. Louis arena a jam-packed crowd it was warm again and it turned out just the way everybody figured it would there were over 16,700 fans in the arena the CBS broadcast crew with Dan Kelly and Bill Mazur was there Kelly gave amazing excellent play-by-play in this series and Mazer was right next to him dutifully gushing over every single play trying to add some semblance of drama to uh, an event whose conclusion is long foregone this is not to say the game was completely without its moments at least not game one it's not unrealistic to say the outcome might have been a tad closer and maybe even different had not Blues goaltender Jacques Plante been struck down by a Fred Stanfield shot in the second period when the score was tied at 1-1. Hit the goalpost, and it's cleared over to the boards. Now it's Busick on the left side. Busick trying to come around in front, getting it over on the point to Stanfield. He shot on and hit Plante and knocked him flat. Plante is hurt on the play. Boy, he really took a winger. Freddie Stanfield wound up, and he has a tremendous shot, a slap shot. It's wicked. Jacques Plant was crouched. He was trying to follow the flight of the puck, and it looked like it hit Jacques right on the forehead. He's lying 
right on his stomach, flat on the ice. Jock Plot was, according to trainer Tommy Woodcock, who was on the scene in seconds, knocked out cold by the shot. After a few moments of initial assessment by Woodcock, a stretcher was brought onto the ice to take Jacques off, but Plant regained his senses enough to refuse the ride and he staggered off of the ice with assistance from his teammates amid an eerie silence in the suddenly quiet St. Louis Arena. From that point on, however, it was all downhill for the Blues as Ernie Wakeley came in and was unable to stem a furious Boston attack but you really can't blame Ernie for what happened. Johnny Busick had his first playoff hat trick for the Bruins, and that led the Boston offense. Wayne Carlton, Derek Sanderson, and Phil Esposito added the other Boston scoring plays as they cruised to an easy 6-1 victory. Jimmy Roberts had the only St. Louis goal, and that tied the game early in the second period at 1-1 before... Plant was injured. Now here's what Johnny Busick's third goal sounded like. And across the line, Busick broke it up and Busick breaks the center. One man back. Busick trying to go around Arbor. And Arbor knocked it off his stick to the corner. Now McKenzie centering it out. Here's Stanfield. Back on the point to Smith. The shot. Loosen from McKenzie. Couldn't get a stick on it. Now McKenzie in the corner. Back to Rick Smith. The drive. Wakely stopped it. Busick got the rebound. It scored. Johnny Busick. Gets the hat trick and grabs the puck as a souvenir. A Stanley Cup final hat trick for Johnny Busick, number nine. Here it is in slow motion. The drive from the point. The rolling puck. And there's Busick. And he hasn't ever had a hat trick before. He's got one now. Blues coach Scotty Bowman did all he could to stem the Boston Tide, including having Roberts shadow Bobby Orr for the entire game. Now, Jimmy did as well as his considerable defensive skills would allow him, and he even scored the Blues' only goal, as we mentioned, and he limited Orr to just one assist. The problem was all of the attention that was paid to Orr simply opened up the rest of the ice, enabling the rest of that talented Boston team to simply outclass the Blues. Bobby discounted the effects of the Blues strategy on his game. He is reported to have said in an Associated Press story, I could have had lunch out there, no bother at all. I kind of wonder about that quote which appeared in the story. Just wonder if another sports writer was maybe writing for them because that doesn't sound like something Bobby Orr would say. Harry Sinden, on the other hand, the Boston coach, summed up the contest perfectly. Harry said, they think the team is only Orr. Bobby is not the whole Boston Bruins. By them watching Orr, we sprung Johnny Busick loose and look what happened. Game two was slated for Tuesday night in St. Louis and we'll have the story of that game and the rest of the series on next week's podcast. So there's other hockey news being made aside from the games in the Stanley Cup final being played this week. And one of the big stories making the rounds that had tugs wanging in all of the hockey cities was a story out of Chicago where there were rumors that the Blackhawks, very upset with losing to the Bruins in the Eastern Division Final, were considering trying to improve their team by trading one of their superstar forwards, 
That means either Bobby Hull or Stan Makita. Now immediately hockey reporters around the NHL jumped on the story. In each city, they gave it a particular spin to kind of include what their teams might be doing to acquire Bobby Hull. The most persistent story uh, had Hull going to the Toronto Maple Leafs, but it wasn't the usual stuff put out by the Toronto media that got this one going. It was very respected sports writer Bill Gleason, who writes for the Chicago Sun-Times, that wrote a story that was picked up by the wire services and other newspapers around North America, and his story lent credence to the rumors that Hall was on the block. Bill Gleason's story began by saying that one of Makita or Hall would, quote, probably be dealt by the Blackhawks in the very near future. Gleason went on to write that uh, the Hull would be the logical choice to be traded because, well, for the first reason, Gleason thinks that Hull would be in much more demand by other teams in the NHL than Makita and would therefore fetch a larger return. Gleason also said that because Hull had given the Chicago management so much grief during contract talks that seemed to take place every fall, that the Hawks would be more than happy to send him packing somewhere else. Gleason mentioned that there were a number of NHL writers who have the belief that Hull would be a natural fit to go to the Toronto Maple Leafs and that the Maple Leafs would love to have him. Gleason himself said that his opinion was that if Hull was to be dealt, it would be to one of the six and soon to be eight National Hockey League expansion teams that would want to acquire his services. Bill gives good reasons for this. He says that Bobby Hull would be a huge box office draw in one of those new cities, and he's not wrong about that. The only issue would be what assets for a team trading for the Golden Jet could they afford to surrender to bring Bobby Hull on board their team. The Hawks will want young up-and-coming players for him that have potential to be stars and that'll end up being too uh, steep a price to pay for most of these expansion teams. High draft picks would have to be any price that would be paid any part of any package as well and after seeing what's happened with the strong teams getting stronger, soon to get much more stronger in the upcoming amateur draft, you wonder if expansion teams will want to trade draft picks for the great Bobby Hull. Bill gives these four reasons why Hull is likely to be traded. First and foremost, he says, the Chicago franchise slides into the Western Division next fall. They don't have to worry about their record. Second, the finest crop of junior age players in history is right on the horizon in the next few years. And according to all talent scouts, a replacement for Hull can probably be found. Third, the infusion of young talent and this season enabled Wirtz and his management team, who include Tommy Ivan and Billy Ray, to win a division championship despite the fact that Hull's scoring production was far below his normal output Maybe he's trending downwards. According to Gleason, hockey, like pro football, has reached the point where the game sells itself 
once it's been established in an area. As soon as Gleason's story appeared, other news outlets provided their own takes. An Associated Press story had Chicago General Manager Tommy Ivan giving their reporter a no comment, but then adding that a whole trade is not completely such a far-fetched idea. The very next day, Milt Dunnell of the Toronto Star, one of the most respected sports journalists on the planet, he wrote about all the very good reasons for Bobby Hall to be traded as well. Dunnell's justifications were similar to those put forth by Bill Gleason. Uh, Milt questioned why the Maple Leafs would want to add a salary as huge as that drawn by Hull to their roster, and that made a lot of sense too. Uh, Dunnell said that Toronto's last place standing this season holds the answer to why the Leafs would spend that money. President Stafford Smythe knows he needs a big draw to get folks' butts into the seats of Maple Leaf Gardens, and the Leafs, as presently constructed, are not an attractive product. The next question Dunnell posed involved what sort of payment would have to be given to the Blackhawks to bring Bobby Hull to Toronto. It is known that Hull does like the city of Toronto and probably, according to Harold Ballard, would want to play there. Milt said that in any event, Mike Walton will have to be part of the package going to Chicago for sure. Donald said that the Leafs had put word out to the rest of the NHL that Mike Walton could be had for the right offer and it seems to me that within the next year, Mike Walton will be traded. And if he were going to go anywhere, Chicago would be a good place, although they're strong down the middle and really wouldn't need a guy like Walton. But then Milt Dunnell wrote what many people think is the unthinkable. He said that there is a possibility, and if you know Milt Dunnell, he doesn't mention possibilities without having heard something somewhere from somebody reputable. He said that a possibility existed that the Maple Leafs would entertain the idea of trading Dave Keon before the next season begins. The suggestion is a deal involving Dave Keon, Mike Walton, and a young defenseman to Chicago for Bobby Hull could be an idea put forth to the Blackhawks should the team open up bids on the superstar left winger. Jack Dolmage of the Windsor Star, a veteran hockey writer, veteran sports columnist, all subject sports, he suggested that Hull could be bound for the American West Coast, specifically the Los Angeles Kings, and this is not such a crazy idea. Mr. Dolmage suggests that owner of the Kings, former Canadian Jack Kent Cook, knows he needs a huge box office draw in Los Angeles, which is, of course, no matter what the subject, a star-driven market. There's no bigger draw in hockey right now than Bobby Hull, although Bobby Orr will challenge that uh, claim in the future. But right now, Bobby Hull is a guy that will put people in the seats, but Jack Dolmage cautions such a move is far too logical to make sense and the Kings actually do it. In Philadelphia, both Jack Chevalier of the Inquirer and Ed Conrad of the Philadelphia News carried stories about the Flyers making a bid for Hull or Makita. 
Uh, both writers seem to suggest that the Flyers don't have the assets to give Chicago for Hull, but they did suggest that Makita could be a guy who would go to uh, Philadelphia instead of uh, Hull. What uh, both writers knew, however, was that a deal was attempted between the two teams last year. That deal would have seen Bernie Perrant go to Chicago with Makita and others possibly going to Philadelphia. That deal dies, though, when you have the idea that Tony Esposito is well ensconced now as the number one netminder in Chicago. Another story making the rounds around Stanley Cup arenas has Minnesota North Stars general manager Ren Blair being told he is secure in his job after there were reports that uh, his job was in jeopardy. North Stars team president Walter Bush was interviewed by a couple of different newspapers and he confirmed to everyone that he's not about to dump the bird. Blair did say he's most likely going to have to seek a new coach for the North Stars, but there's a good reason for that, and it's not the coaching of Charlie Burns, who's the president bench boss. Charlie is still a player. He's still considered a player by the North Stars, and he will not be protected in the expansion draft. Ren Blair thinks that either Buffalo or Vancouver will not be able to pass up choosing Charlie Burns in the expansion draft. And so in that case, Burns will have to report to one of those teams and the North Stars are going to have to get a new coach. One other nugget from Ren Blair about the North Stars. The North Stars will not train this fall in Halliburton, Ontario, where they've been the past few years. A new site has not been determined, but Ren Blair says... It'll be a Canadian city, and I would not be surprised if it were a city with closer proximity to Minneapolis-St. Paul. The Western Hockey League has chosen its most valuable player for this past season, and he is center Andy Bathgate of the Vancouver Canucks. But Andy isn't a lot to suit up for the Canucks when they enter the NHL next fall. His rights for the NHL, are owned by the Pittsburgh Penguins who had lent him to the Canucks. If the Penguins think that Andy can help their team next season, then he'll be summoned back to Pittsburgh. Unless, of course, they don't protect him in the expansion draft, where there is a likelihood that Andy's old friend Punch Imlach would entertain thoughts of acquiring the former right-winger, now center, once again, this time for the new Buffalo Sabres. And, well, we have more strangeness surrounding the Oakland Seals. The present owners of the Seals have filed a lawsuit in California Superior Court against the old owners of the Oakland Seals to prevent them from selling the franchise out from underneath them. Now, how the heck is this possible? Well, it seems the old owners of the Seals uh, from whom the present owners purchase a franchise, claim they have not received full payment from the original sale, and therefore, basically, they're going to foreclose, take possession of the team, and then sell it for whatever they can get. Already, two names have surfaced as potential suitors for the Seals, and they are a couple of very interesting names. Roller Derby impresario Jerry Seltzer 
He owns the Roller Derby League that everybody sees on TV, and he owns all the teams. And Charles O. Finley, who's the owner of the Oakland Athletics Baseball Club. Now, neither of these two shysters can be an appetizing possibility for the NHL to admit as owners. Still with the Seals, a couple days after this news surfaced, the NHL revealed it had kept a special payroll bank account to ensure Seals players were paid during the season. That's just a mess in Oakland, and I don't know how they're ever going to resolve this. A lot of people are thinking that they should just lock it up in Oakland and move the team to a real hockey city where the fans are going to pack the rink. But is there a real hockey city available with a rink big enough to house an NHL team? They're in a fix right now, that's for sure. Well, in this week's sporting news, Stan Fischler has a rant again. This time it's not about complaining about players maybe wearing helmets or goaltenders putting face masks on. Stan writes this week that the National Hockey League must consider a tiebreaker for regular season games that it must be five penalty shots after the game is finished. Fischler says the penalty shot is the most exciting play in hockey. Realistically, the penalty shot is only exciting because it's so darn rare. Referees are reticent to call a penalty shot in 99% of the hockey games they officiate because they don't want to unduly influence the game by giving a team the free chance. The reality is, if this plan were put into practice, it probably wouldn't be long before the penalty shot solution would lose its luster. The penalty shot, the one-on-one free chance, whatever you want to call it, would become more commonplace. And really, I don't think there's a heck of a lot to really seeing a penalty shot something it's boring it's one guy against a goaltender and if you did it all the time how exciting could that possibly be one more note on the vancouver canucks their final year in the western hockey league was a successful one the canucks this week won the western hockey league championship by taking out the portland buckaroos in five games they won the final game at vancouver before a crowd of over 15,000 by a score of eight to one with veteran center len lundy leading the way with three goals for the canucks So that, everyone, is our show for this week. And what have we learned this time around? Well, we learned that the Boston Bruins are indeed the class of the NHL as they took out the Blackhawks in four straight to go to an anticlimactic Stanley Cup final against the Blues. And what we really will want to find out is, can the Blues win a game? We learned that this young Pittsburgh player, Michel Briere, he's the real deal, even though his heroics weren't enough to keep the Penguins from losing to the Blues, this kid could make Pittsburgh a hockey city for sure. And we found out about the hot rumor going around the Stanley Cup playoffs is that the Blackhawks could trade Bobby Hull before next fall And according to some very well-connected writers, 
the Toronto Maple Leafs could be his next NHL team. Next week, we'll bring you a few more stories as the National Hockey League 1969-70 season will mercifully come to a close and that'll be of course our top story the outcome will not be a surprise but the finish of the st louis boston stanley cup final will contain one of hockey's most iconic moments and we'll have that for you we'll have jacques plant reflecting on his hockey career and his hockey future from his st louis hospital bed and we'll have yet more news on this ever-evolving Oakland Seals situation. Please join us next week as we journey once again back to 1970 for all the hockey news of that period. As usual, each week, our 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for everything he does. The Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music, and you've got to see them if you ever get a chance. They have a great high-energy uh, performance that they put on. Unfortunately, we're not going to have a chance to see them live, it looks like, for quite a while. Our research comes from the files of the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and, of course, the many publications found at newspapers. Don't forget to give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast hosted by Andy Cole. Andy tells me he's got new uh, episodes coming up soon. It's a really neat podcast where each week Andy and a special guest engage in great conversation. And during the session, they write an entirely new song that they perform at the end of the the, uh, broadcast. It's quite entertaining and you should give it a listen. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com and you can get this podcast through your favorite podcast app and we now have it available on YouTube as well. We thank everyone who tunes into the show We're enjoying bringing it to you during this trying time and we've got some new additions in the work. Unfortunately, they've been delayed by the circumstances in which we find ourselves, but we should have some pretty interesting stuff coming up for the soon-to-be-in-place off-season. Thanks again and we will see you next time. 